My name is Karma. And I'm Omer. You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. In this episode, we're going to be chatting with Justin Pudor. Justin is someone who wears many hats. He is an associate professor in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. He is the author of Haiti's New Dictatorship, which was published in 2012. Justin also hosts a podcast called The Ossington Circle, which you can find on his website along with his writings, uh, podur.org. Today, we're going to be chatting with Justin about his latest book, a novel about Gaza called Siege Breakers. Welcome to us for breakfast, Justin. Thank you, guys. So this book, Siege Breakers, we described it as a novel about Gaza, but it really is, I guess, about Gaza and the world. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the book, why you decided to write it? Sure. So I think for especially for listeners on this podcast, it's like the idea is there's a political agenda behind this. There's a political project. And in literature, you'll hear the idea that you're not supposed to have an agenda, that you're supposed to just follow your art. But really, every, in, in my opinion, every piece of literature has a statement that they're trying to make. And I think for me, the statement for Siege Breakers, well, there's a few, but I think, you know, the why write a novel instead of writing another article or having another interview on the Ossington Circle about Palestine or about Gaza. And I think it's, for me, it's like the chance to get inside of a perspective, inside of someone's feelings and like empathize that way in a more profound way than you could in a nonfiction or a journalism kind of sense. So the theme of the book is really about how these are human beings. Like the point of the project is that Palestinians are human beings and beyond Palestinians being human beings, Palestinian fighters are human beings. Because it's one thing to say that resistance to occupation or resistance to apartheid is legitimate. And I think some people, including, you know, even even you might say like liberal politics might say that uh, nonviolent resistance is legitimate. But then for me, I want, I want people to understand that the people that are fighting are, are doing so out of an impulse that anyone else in that situation would, would feel. Hmm. And I want to put you in that situation and I want you to feel what it's like to be in that situation so that you can understand that. So you can say, well, yeah, and under these circumstances, I would very much do the same thing. And I also want um, it was. It's also kind of about heroism, which I wrote an essay about. But it's like how um, you know I'm a big fan of like superhero movie. I mean, everybody watches superhero movies now because it's the only movies you can watch in the theater. Um, but you know what? Do, what would a hero? What's a hero? Because they're they're facing you know the Avengers face aliens or something. But it's like in our world, what would heroes do? Like what do what do heroes do in a, in Gaza? What would like you know, a Captain America do in Gaza. And it would be like, well, Captain America in Gaza would be like, Nasser would be like the squad that um, that I write about. Um, if if they were in Israel, like what's a hero, what's a heroic Israeli do? Well, I think that would be how I would map 
Ari, my, my Israeli character, because what a hero does in that situation is some kind of treason against the apartheid state that he works for. And then um, Maria, my, oh, do, did you want to? Well, I just wanted to, maybe it'd be helpful for um, our audience if you just gave a sort of a summary of sure. of the plot, mm -hmm. not to like spoil anything, but, then, but <laughs> then people will be able to tell the context in yeah. which these characters yeah. are. I'm a major spoiler and that's a problem for sure. But, and especially when I, when you write a thriller, but so yeah, the plot is basically that there are, there's a group of people in Gaza, there's a group of people that are Americans, and then there's a group of people there's mainly one Israeli and it's like this Israeli is a defector. He's within Mossad and his name is Ari. And then there's members of the Palestinian resistance, the main one being Nasser. And then there's a group of American kind of contractors and they trained Ari back years before the story started kind of in the backstory. And so Ari and these Americans are secretly kind of helping the Palestinians. So basically it's these three kind of groups, uh, all working towards trying to break the siege, which is why the novel is called Siege Breakers. Uh, and that's the, that's the basic plot premise. Yeah, going off of that, uh, one really interesting thing I thought about the book was how detailed politically it was. Like you, I really felt like I was myself maneuvering a political situation. And typically when I read novels, especially about Palestine, it's either sort of a, a story about something sad that I'm supposed to obviously empathize with, but it stops there and the politics goes just as far as explaining the context um, or if it's, it's historical accounts with analysis, right? Um, so reading your book, I was, yeah, I was very interested to be like, you know, all of a sudden uh, in the contemporary context and having to politically maneuver that. What was your, pro maybe this is a very abstract kind of question, but what was your process like trying to figure out um, how you're going to make all the pieces put, you know, come together to form the political landscape that you set out? Wow, that's a great, I, you know, I'm really happy that you got that out of it because that's very much what I was hoping to do. And for me, it does come from my, you know, nonfiction interest in, in Palestine. So uh, in Gaza in, I guess it was like 2006, sometime around 2006 or seven, uh, there was like Hamas kind of took over Gaza from Fatah. Like, so there's these two kind of factions and um, the Palestinian authority was uh, traditionally Fatah and in Gaza, Hamas took over and they've been in charge ever since. And that's a big part of why Gaza has been so severely punished was because Hamas doesn't collaborate with Israel at the same level that Fatah does. Mm -hmm. And so um, in the West Bank, there's always kind of dealing and there's always there's always this dream of unity. There's always this idea that everybody, all the factions always say, like, if you would just do this, we, we could unite and then we could fight Israel together. And the other side says the same thing. So Fatah and Hamas and, and some of the leftist factions and, you know, other other there are other Islamic factions, too. So the kind of factionalized Palestinian political landscape of resistance, they all dream of unity. So for me, it was like, how would that actually happen? How could that possibly, how could that possibly happen even fictionally? And that was, uh, that was like a big part of the Palestinian plot line was, was that kind of quest for unity. And that's what Nasser, my Palestinian character, he's plays a relatively minor role in that, but 
that he's close to those processes happening. He's always in the room when things are, <laughs> when those things are going on. Um, he's not a political person, but the people around him are. So right. Right. Uh, that was that was basically the idea for that perspective, um, for the Palestinian perspective. And then, you know, on the American side, there the Americans are having to deal with the pro-Israel lobby. So there's some. Uh, what I, I I wrote them to be kind of funny scenes um, uh, with with the with the lobby with the interactions between them and the lobby and then on the Israeli side of course this is a, a really scary situation for the Israeli character because he's you know he's deep in the organization and he's trying to ha- every move that he makes is under suspicion. Right. Um, obviously, you were saying how some of the most ridiculous things that are in there mm-hmm. are actually true and based on yeah. uh, real events. I guess maybe this is, I mean, you were writing a, a fiction and, and you had to fill in a lot of blanks, but I wonder, given that so much of what's in the book is so sort of covert, um, it's supposedly things that we are not supposed to know about, how much of that was just you really trying to, mm. you know, imagine what this would be like versus how much of it is, yes. and where is it drawn from if it's... If it's so... Um, again, spoiler alert, but chapter five, there's an assassination attempt that's foiled. And the real story there is, you know, I moved I moved it to Abu Dhabi, but there was an assassination of a Hamas official in Dubai in a hotel. And the Dubai police got upset about it because they were kind of upset that the, Isra- the Mossad was operating in their country and they came and they killed somebody in one of their hotels. And, you know, they just expected that it would all be fine because... Yeah. The world is arranged for Israel to do what it wants, right? Um, so what they did, they couldn't strike back at Israel or, or anything like that or, or the U.S., but what they did was they got they put together all this video of all the assassins coming in from the airport, all of them hanging out in the lounge, all the different teams, and they like attached all their IDs, and they made this vi- incredible video just completely deconstructing this Mossad assassination operation. And I watched that video over and over again, and I thought, man, wouldn't it have been cool if somebody could have like gotten into the middle of this and foiled it? And that was where that came from. Right. So that's an example. Um, there's another example. Well, there's several examples during the battle scenes where there's a incredible report by an Israeli group called Breaking the Silence where they interviewed all these soldiers, pretty low-level soldiers, like sergeants, privates, on what they did in the Gaza War in 2014. Mm. And so a lot of what Ari experiences when he's in Gaza is come, comes from that report. And there's like spe- pretty specific notes to specific reports at the, in the afterword of the book. Right. So usually that's when you, you know, that line that I said in the afterword that the most outrageous things are the true things. Uh, I tried to show how, where I got them mm-hmm. um, in the in the book, but then it's like I don't I didn't want it to be a series of episodes either. So right. it's like once once you're the heroes and you've saved somebody from an assassination, well then what happens next? So then the consequences of that I are more something I, I would have to imagine and right, work yeah. out in the plot. Yeah, and, and Karma and I were actually yeah we were talking about this like how the research that would have gone into it. And one of the things that we were wondering about is like, yeah, I mean, I for myself, I guess the the assassination attempt at the hotel, I could see like actually there were elements that were 
like straight out of you know like the guys with the tennis rackets yeah. like i remember that you that saw was, that video yeah, yeah yeah and um so that was you know feature, featured in the novel and then yeah the stuff about the israelis when they're with the ground invasion right yeah. and like you know down to like okay where do we take a shit yeah. like you know <laughs> um and actually you you didn't go as far as as some of the accounts yeah because like a lot of it is just like you know these soldiers just like defecating in people's homes yeah Whereas the, the ones that in the novel like make it a point to go in the backyard. Yeah. Um, but actually, the thing I was wondering about is your account of the the Palestinian resistance fighters. Yeah. Because there, I'm I'm sure there's not as much documentation. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it, where do where do Nasser and his crew, who are very highly disciplined, highly trained, uh, very heroic kind of characters in the in the form of I, I mean I guess as you were saying, sort of comic book hero type uh, mm -hmm. commandos so where where did that sort of come from i'm just yeah okay so i'm just gonna read you a little bit of um a little bit of chapter 21 um the more this morning ari had another thought drinking coffee from a big mug american style he looked out from one of the guard towers that ringed gaza zahava sat behind him working at her laptop before his eyes, bombs burst and shells dropped on buildings and people. Ari was thinking that war was about guessing right. On his side, aerial photos and spatial algorithms decided which houses would be destroyed from afar and which houses would be occupied and used as a base for further operations. For many years, the Palestinians had unknowingly suffered the power of such equations. Then sometime before 2006, the Lebanese sat down to look at the same aerial photos and contour maps of South Lebanon that the Israelis had. They had laid them out and asked which buildings provide the best vantage point, the best cover for controlling the street, the best mobility through the environment. From a mathematical perspective, it was not a difficult problem. Constrain a problem enough and few solutions remained. The unique solution unique quickly emerges. So the Lebanese had guessed, solved their formula for choosing houses. And in the 2006 war, the Israelis felt the consequences. Some Israeli squads were setting up in their occupied houses, rolling up their sleeves, kicking off their boots, opening their cans of sardines when Lebanese guerrillas came up through the basements or walls, knife fighting in the dark with their shoes off. He knew of squads that called for backup, got backup, and with a dozen men in close quarters combat inside a house, the Lebanese blew up the whole house, accepting the deaths of their own men to inflict casualties on the Israelis. So these are all stories that I heard from people who were in Lebanon shortly after the war. And there are sto similar stories of how the, the resistance in Gaza learned those mm. methods. Mm. Um, there is one pretty good book by Max Blumenthal, The 51 Day War, where mm. he talks to people who survived uh, and he talks to including like about how they fought the Israelis. So it's like going back and colonial wars are like this, right? I mean, it's there, there's this mystique about the colonial power being totally invincible and having these incredible, like uh, this incredible disproportion of force. And then every so often there's opposition or resistance that's able to kind of puncture that a little bit. Usually they, they still took way more casualties than the, mm -hmm. than the Israelis, right? Um, but that whole... That was the basis for it, was like going back to the Hezbollah-Israel war of 2006 and then some accounts of fighters in the 2014 mm -hmm. war. And there are some, Electronic Intifada has done some uh, reporting on this too, where, uh, you know, Hamas has released videos 
at times where they've come out of tunnels into Israel and like taken video and been like, we could have, you know, we could have done a lot here, but we don't kill civilians for no reason. So we, Hmm. you know, and that, that's another, that's another important point that I wanted to make about Nasser and his crew is that they're like very ethical, right? Like they've, they very much follow the Geneva convention and the Israelis don't. Um, and that does seem to be the direction that the Palestinian resistance has moved militarily. Mm. They've, they've focused on hard targets, right? Not attacking civilians and trying to inflict casualties on the Israeli military. And there are lots of limitations to that that are discussed by the Palestinian characters about how like that that's all fine when they come, but if they don't come and they just bomb us from the air, what do we do? Right. But actually, yeah, I'm, I, I, I was saying exactly this to Karma yesterday. Mm-hmm. I was saying, well, these characters and like the way they're going about things reminds me of Hezbollah. Yeah. And and not so much Hamas. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But they have been there have been some uh, exchange programs <laughs> um, sure. over the past decade and a half, <laughs> which is which is a part of why Israel was surprised in 2014. Mm-hmm. There were several um, battles, including the one of very similar one that I wrote about in Siege Breakers that. Uh, the Israelis were really surprised at what uh, the Palestinians were able to do. And I think a lot of that comes from following Hezbollah doctrine and methods. Yeah. Well, following the idea of uh, the invincible colonial power, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting to look at the role of the American state in the novel, because we typically think of America and Israel as these inseparable allies that will never you know, there's never going to be any friction. And it seems like there in the novel, there seems to be a shift away from that, not maybe fully, but that um, there was a, a line at some point that was like, you know, if 10 years ago, yeah, you can expect that the Americans would never um, betray Israel or whatever. But now that's the percentage is kind of yeah. um, shrinking. Um, I mean, do you see that this, like, I know that there has been more friction than there has been in the past now. Uh, but where where do you see that relationship going in reality? Because it seemed pretty integral to the the sort of success of the Palestinians. <laughs> Sadly, that's uh, probably the most fictional part of the book. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it that that's very much the what if kind of part of the book. There's two really like what if parts of the book, and one of them is what if there were some Americans with some institutional power that were on the side of the Palestinians. And the other one, of course, is what if there was a person that was really high up in in the Israeli intelligence that was on the side of the Palestinians. And those two things are really, really not, I don't really see those things happening anytime soon. Um, But, you know, uh, as far as friction goes, the, the thing to remember, I guess, the one caveat I would put on that is Israel puts a lot of work into maintaining that relationship all the time. They put lots of work into making sure that every like every political party in the West, every single one, no matter how minor, you know, is pro-Israel. They make sure that civil society is pro-Israel. They make sure that, um, you know, unions are pro-Israel. So there's just the, the way, if you think about the way they understand it, they don't understand it as something that they take for granted. They understand it as something that requires constant maintenance mm-hmm. and resources and, and effort. And that's why they're so uh, offended by the BDS movement or, um, you know, all of those kind of solidarity movements in, in, in the West, in Canada or in the States or in Europe, 
because if it if it is indeed a, a thing they have to constantly maintain, then it also means that it could be disrupted. So that potential yeah. for disrupting it is is always there. And I think that's um, that's what I was trying to ex- extend or like over emphasize. How do I how do I hope for? No, yeah, it's not quite hopeful. It's like, you know, you 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 take something that's like a dull color and you paint it like a really bright color just uh. to see what what happens, what it looks like. So I mean, there must be a German word for that. Yeah, there's probably some <laughs> or yeah, an Arabic word or something. Yeah. Um but yeah, so there is the 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 plot is kind of hopeful, right? You're imagining what it would take for yeah. the siege to be broken. Yeah. Uh and so like lots of things have to line up, right? There has to be some betrayal on yeah. on some part of the intelligence yeah. uh, personnel within the within Israel. The American state has to back off a little bit. Yeah. Um, there has to be you know international solidarity. But then a, a major component of it, which you did speak about at the beginning, is is resistance uh, from the Palestinians. Yeah. And you don't shy away from rendering it as violent resistance. Yeah. You know, and the, I, I guess, and you did talk about this in, at the beginning, and I guess I want to kind of touch on it again. It, when I when I see like Hamas, there's some they like kidnap a, a soldier or something. I my first thought is like, okay, like this is probably just gonna lead to more bombing yeah. or some shit. Yeah, like not, no nothing good is gonna come out of this. Yeah. Um, whereas in and I, I'm not, not that I'm a fan of Hamas or whatever, but yeah. like one can, even in real life, I can understand like what's going on and like, you know, why they're engaging in these kind of tactics. But in the, in the form of the, the novel, um, the rendering that you have of them kind of engaging, and it's not, you don't, you don't call them Hamas, but I'm, yeah. I think they are. <laughs> it seems well, the word, like, I, tra- I, I make a point of translating everything into English, right? I so, um, you know, I, I don't use... Arabic words for food. I don't use Arabic words for God. Right. So, yeah. So they call themselves the resistance. Right. So ultimately, I mean, that's what worked for Hezbollah, right? Right. That they were just able to, you know, inflict casualties on the Israelis. Um, and and there are like Israeli analysts who talk about the fact that, well, these, you know, Israeli soldiers aren't really trained to take on a force that knows how to fight. Yeah. Because, you know, for them, it's like just managing civilians in the West Bank and then shooting at people in in Gaza from afar. Um, So to me, actually, like that part of it was maybe the most fantastical, right? Right. That, that, um, and and obviously there was a a fantastical element where they were able to get weaponry. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, maybe I could take that part out, but... But but really, I mean, ultimately, like you know, when when it's rendered in that form, it really makes you realize that that that's what it'll take. I mean, it'll take yeah. the Israeli military being you know uh, forced to face casualties uh, and back off. Um, yeah. And I don't know if I'm going to keep any of this. <laughs> so let me let me say a few things about this because I think this is a really important a really important discussion. And it's something I thought about a lot and struggled with a lot. And where I came down on it was I watch a lot of a lot of uh, shows, like a lot of crime shows, a lot of thrillers. I watch movies and I read a lot of thrillers. And um, a lot of these are about like the FBI or the the um, 
CIA or, you know, these police agencies, local police agencies. And what these police agencies do in real in the real world is a lot of class, you know, violence, a lot of and a lot of spying on totally benign, harmless people, a lot of control and surveillance and kind of sordid, tawdry stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, they're completely glorified in our culture. Uh, and whatever violence they do, of course, is, is completely justified in these stories. And so I thought, like, how is, like, if you take the Palestinian resistance, if you take, like, the real Hamas, the real Hamas is not the Hamas or the Palestinian resistance that's portrayed in this in this book. Mm-hmm. But it's like what I portray in this book of the Palestinian resistance, I don't think is more different than a thriller of the FBI portrayal compared to the real FBI. So it's it's a little bit of like abstraction or or a law firm, right? Like one of these like suits. I don't know if you guys watch suits, but it's like the the pace of a, a case in this in the, they'll solve a, they'll do a legal case in a in a 15 minute segment of of a show that would ordinarily take lots of years of really boring, you know, like a real boring slog of a whole team of lawyers and they'll just do it cuz they'll strip it down to this logic. So it's like that's, you know, that's what you do, right? That's what that's one of the luxuries you have in fiction is to kind of abstract things out and ideal make certain things idealized. But also, it's not entirely made up either because there are these nuances and these are they are real people so that like this Palestinian resistance, it's nominally Islamic, but there are people in it that are pretty secular and they're they're living their lives in a wide variety of ways in terms of their religious practices and their love lives and and their lifestyles. And I think that's true. You know, that that accords with what I've seen of Palestinians, of Muslims, of of real world societies in Asia. And uh and that's what I, you know, so what what I what I mean to say is fiction is always going to abstract things and it's always going to foreground certain things and and abstract certain things out but it's also I'm also exaggerate that's what I was trying to <laughs> that's what I was trying to say 20 minutes ago um but it's also exaggerating and making things emphasizing things that are present and are real and that's like where the author's agenda comes in right like mm-hmm. I'm trying to sh- because my whole agenda is to humanize, to reduce the distance between a Western reader and a member of the Palestinian resistance, that um, I'm going to emphasize those things that we have in common, as opposed to those things that we don't have in common, which are there are there, are, of course there are, um, and I'm sure people reading Siege Breakers will actually be like, "Wow, this is so different than my daily experience." But I hope that they'll also say, "Oh, actually, these people are not that different." Yeah. Yeah, we were also, me and Amir were also talking about the role of Islam Mm -hmm. generally. Um, And, I mean, it was interesting because it seemed like at least the the leadership of the resistance was portrayed as publicly, you know, religious, uh, but actually kind of secular. Um, And that seems to be sort of a a thing in the region now generally that you have to, like, if you want to be in any kind of public face, you you need to put up some form of... uh, of a religious, you know, front. Um, I mean, 
how do you how do you think of like the role like what do you think of the role of Islam generally is here? It's mentioned obviously throughout the book. It's a consistent thing, but never and there's like that there's the one scene obviously with this, this the foreigner like the Swedish yeah. men, um, who another Islamic group. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if we want to spoil this or not either. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, we, yeah, well, that's based on real events. That's also, it is based on real events, yeah, right? Yeah, Vittorio um, Paragoni. Yeah. So how do you how do you what do you think of that and and the maneuvering of that throughout this whole thing as well? Yeah, I mean that story obviously really really upset me, <laughs> and and that's well, why I put maybe it. Maybe we yeah. can can you tell the story? Right. Yeah. Okay. So Vittorio Aragoni was uh, an Italian uh, activist. He um, he can't, he went to Gaza I think in two thousand eight uh, with one of the flotillas. That like there was. A few flotilla, like we think of Gaza flotillas as basically always getting intercepted and turned back, but there were at least one, maybe two, that got through. And so Aragoni went there, and he was there, and he was there for a long time, and uh, and he was kidnapped and killed by uh, some, you know, Palestinian group. Um, and there's like not a lot of detail, but we do know that they were the people, the perpetrators were ultimately arrested and punished, uh, you know, to the full extent of the law or whatnot, however you want to put it, by by the government of Gaza, which is, you know, a Hamas government. So it's like they, Aragoni was murdered ostensibly for uh, not being a good influence on the Islamic Uh, public presumably the Islamic public of Gaza and uh, and Hamas was very much against that murder and they you know they were there was a search there was a you know they like stuff that happens in siege raiders they turned Gaza upside down trying to find him and they Mm -hmm. found him just a little bit too late Um, so that's all those are all real Mm -hmm. events and so for me that was like a real a really powerful story about what Islam you know, means in these contexts. Like this, here was one group that was kidnapping and killing somebody out of some notion of Islam. And then here you have a bunch of Islamists that are trying to stop that and save the guy for the same, you know, not not very different, right? Like it's just their view. So like for me, Islam is religion. Um, you know, we're all, we're all socialists here. We may not be the the hottest with organized religion uh but um religion is is always interpreted and everybody in the region interprets it and what the relationship with politics is is different depending on where you are and who you ask and and all these different every faction has a different idea and the powerful like kind of hegemonic imposition of islam that's been that's done so much havoc in that part of the world i think i think of it as basically saudi foreign policy and saudi foreign policy means kind of imperial foreign policy and like saudi it's the saudi kingdom and the other gulf monarchies that you know fund these things and set bring people and take them to school and have all this um you know this kind their specific politicized idea of what Islam is, and they're able to impose it because of their almost unlimited, basically unlimited resources. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, I, I really I really want to differentiate between Islam and what the Saudis are doing in 
using real using Islam as you know as a tool in their in their agendas in the region. Yeah, but I mean, so part of the reason that uh, a group like Hamas, I mean, you know, I I guess the portrayal in the book is obviously sympathetic, but I'm sure if we were interacting with uh, Hamas type people in our own sort of political environment, we wouldn't like them. Uh, <laughs> and they probably would, they wouldn't they like wouldn't us. They wouldn't like us <laughs> and probably deal with us in ways that are not nice and perhaps violent. But the other thing, uh, part of, I guess, the rise of political Islam and in the Palestinian context, but, uh, but broadly, I guess, in the Middle East and the broader Muslim world, a part of it has to do with the hollowing out of secular nationalist yeah. uh, parties and, mm-hmm. and their agendas. And that's also portrayed in the book. Yeah, but you got to get into it, right? Because the Palest- like Palestinians, like people, people went in that Hamas direction for nationalist reasons, not for religious reasons. Mm-hmm. So like the hollowing out happens because the Palestinian Authority keeps making compromise after compromise with, with Israel. And then the first group that says we're not going to do this anymore wins politically in terms of winning followers. Now, the, these, like, back in the day, <laughs> um, it was the other way around, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the, it was actually the Islamists that were making more compromises and sitting out, you know, the first intifada, for example. Uh, yeah, these things change. They're dynamic and they're, they're complex. You know, everybody always invokes complexity, but I, but I mean something very specific. Like, they're, the relationship between Islam or religion and nationalism is always changing. And like, there's these different things that come up in different eras in Palestine and elsewhere. Um, and so again, like I'm, what I'm trying to convey in Siege Breakers is that, and you can do it again in a novel because you have, you can have multiple characters and they can be debating this from different perspectives. Like there's a scene um, where an Islamist is debating with a, PA person and the PA person is Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority person is saying, like, you guys sat out all these, all these, all of our struggles back in the day. And the Islamist is kind of smirking because he actually was a nationalist before and he only became an Islamist nominally so that he could maintain a, the following that he has. So th- these are all things that. I'm able to do in a fictional book that would be really tough to talk about in a in a non in a nonfiction context. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I mean, we've been talking about how everything has to line up in yeah. a certain way uh, for for things to be possible. And there was a you short like you you touched briefly on international solidarity generally, and like towards the end of the book, maybe how that also plays a role and and what role that generally has. Um, I mean, we're on a campus right now. There's obviously a lot of campus work in general that goes into it. I mean, that's mostly, I think, what people in the West know about when it comes to Palestinian activism. So obviously this book gives them uh, a little bit of an insight on what it would be like on the ground. Um, But how do you envision international solidarity as as you understand it now, like the BDS movement Mm -hmm. um, playing in to the Palestinian struggle in a real way. Like I'm, I maybe I'm just a little 
just feeling a little hopeless or yeah. maybe I'm a little jaded, but I, I'm all, I'm very skeptical of the role that um, it's in terms of how much it's actually helping. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure, of course it is. I mean, it's, it's made some really big gains, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think of it as secondary. Um, I think of it as very important. It's, it's important because Israel isn't just Israel, right? I mean, like, and Gaza is not being, starved by Israel. It's being starved by Israel and Egypt and the Gulf monarchies and the U.S. and Canada and all these and Europe and the United Nations even in, in a lot of ways, right? So it's like there ha we have to be, people from all of these parts of the world have to be involved. Um, right. And, you know, it, of course you feel hopeless. Like uh, in a way I wrote this because I feel hopeless. Right. Like it's it, it's not a great moment. Um, it's not a great moment to imagine how it could really how things could change in the real world, which is part, a big part of why I want I wrote it as a fiction, because it's like, well, you know, at least we can imagine if things were to line up right. this, you know, this could happen. So ha solidarity, like I do think that in a lot of cases, strategy bad strategy leads to bad results. But in this particular case, and I've said this about the Palestinians in general, like if the Palestinians had done virtually everything right, they would still have a really hard time mm -hmm. against because of how organized and how powerful and how well, um, how strong the alliances Israel has with, you know, the U.S. and, and everyone else. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, that's how I feel about the solidarity movement too. Like, relative to the opposition that we're facing right you know i it's not we just need to keep doing it and we just need to try to do more of it but mm -hmm. like trying to everything we're doing to me makes sense mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and 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 a part of the part of this project part of siege breakers is like to try to humanize and try to show that perspective of people there and showing them as, because you, you mentioned political maneuvering, like to show them as really sophisticated agents, not like just suffering, miserable people. Yes. Because you can't, you know, solidarity with suffering, miserable people is not really, you know, it's more like charity, right? Right. But if solidarity with savvy agents, it's like, yeah, let's have a debate because yeah. what you're suggesting might not make sense for us to do here or vice versa. Right. right? Yeah, but you're, you're they're also portrayed as having internal divisions yeah. and like having flaws, you know, as as humans. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. So that part is, I think, yeah, it's hard to actually talk about that in a non-fictional way. Yeah. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. think when we have you know solidarity work, we tend to idealize those yeah. w with whom we are standing in solidarity. And with. you kind of have to. I guess you kind of have to, but at the same time, it, it I think it weakens some of the work because you know there's you you need to have a realistic sense of what's yeah actually happening. Anyway, so maybe we could wrap up this section mm -hmm. and and continue the discussion in the second segment. Yeah, sure, sounds good. Uh, where can people uh, grab a copy of the book? Uh, you can buy it directly from the publisher, which is Roseway Publishing. So you can get that online um, in Toronto if you're in Toronto, as many of you probably are another story is where we did the book launch and that's on roncesvale yeah you can definitely get it there all right all right so
So we're going to continue chatting with Justin Podur. The next part of our discussion will be made available to our Patreon supporters within the next week. Remember that you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and becoming a patron. Our patrons get access to exclusive content and they help us cover the costs of producing oats for breakfast. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.